Hey everybody, and uh, buenos dias to mi gato favorito Jeff. How you doing, buddy? Today's guest, Wiley Davis, I actually met in the wild, in line, at a bathroom at a brewery. <laughs> and we struck up a conversation and discovered that she's an author and has a fascinating life story that she's captured in this book that during the episode I realized I didn't announce her name until all the way towards the end. But the name of the book is called It's Me or the Horse. And we have a, a great conversation about healing trauma, getting involved into therapy. And she asked me some very insightful questions about my experiences. And just a delightful human and wanted to share the story of her book. Enjoy. I don't know. I'm making this up as I go. What are your qualifications? Ah, well, I attended Juilliard. I'm a graduate of the Harvard Business School. I travel quite extensively. I have people skills. I am good at dealing with people. You just don't know when to give up, do you? I'm going to do this all day. The Matt Sodnicka Podcast. Well, the first question I wanted to ask is about the afterword of the book and what Renee had written. And I thought that was really powerful because of it talking about therapy and talking about that. Um, that's been a huge part of my life getting to this point and um, I just thought what she wrote about you and your journey was incredible. And how did that relationship come to be? I talk about it in the book. Um, I had a really, really, really awful date that was very triggering for me. And, um, I just, it was the only time I'd ever in my life left someone at a bar and asked the manager to walk me to my car. And it was like, okay, um, this is a very clear sign. It was the first date I'd been on after um, the first kind of real date in a, in a while after I'd finalized my divorce. And I was like, I need to really address this or I'm going to continue making the same mistakes over and over and over again. And um, I'd done traditional therapy. I tried EMDR and I just felt like test anxiety. <laughs> like I just <laughs> felt like I was going to get it wrong. <laughs> um, and Renee came uh, highly recommended to me by a friend of mine. And so I thought, you know what? Um, I'm going to try this and I'm going to take the toys away so we don't have squeaking. Sorry. I thought I prepared all of this, but hang on one second. It's okay. <laughs> about to get one of these. Sorry, one second. Sorry. <laughs> I thought I thought I had the dogs all situated, um, but uh, I didn't. So do you want me to just go back real quick and then talk finish that thought? No, let's just leave it in. I'll try All right. it out. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, but yeah, Ren <laughs> the magic of life. Yeah. Re Renee um, was highly recommended to me by um, a mutual friend who had a lot of success with hypnotherapy. And I was like, you know what? Like, I'll do it. And immediately I felt really comfortable with Renee. Um, and then I started seeing her and kind of like unpacking the frilly stuff before we could really feel safe to get into, you know, the this ultra scary stuff. Um, and one of the things that I really, I think was, I, I, I never wanted to remember anything. And so this idea of like my brain forgets things to protect me and that's how trauma works. Um, I found safety and security in that. So part of what I was so terrified of was like all of these memories coming flooding back and having to, you know, live my life completely differently or have a new set of trauma. So we had lots of conversations about like, what is hypnotherapy? What is ART? How is this going to work? And, um, you know, she, I felt very, very safe with her. How bad was that date? And do you recall the specific, was there a specific moment 
or did it just accumulate into I'm pulling the ripcord and got to get out of here? Um, it culminated definitely. The guy immediately just gave me creep vibes. I don't know if it was his like 1990s jeans that, and not to like you know make fun of what he was wearing, but like it was pretty bad. Um, like not, not like hip vintage nineties jeans, but like, yeah, I'm still going to keep wearing these. Cause I think that I still look cool. Like I, I were they pleated kind of, yeah. And the guy had like, <laughs> uh, imagine with like frosted tips, like he never moved past the nineties. Um, uh, but he kept at, he came with a list of questions and this was like, you know, kind of during COVID. So I was vaccinated because I did a vaccination study and I felt, you know, pretty safe in that. Um, and, but, you know, still like meeting at a bar during COVID, it was kind of scary and like, you know, how are you going to sit and all of that kind of stuff and everybody's comfort level is different. So, you know, also being flexible, you know, with, with who he was and what he felt good with, but he came with a list of questions that he had typed up on his phone, which I thought was a, a little weird. Um, but then as he started diving into the questions, the questions were not about him getting to know me. The questions were, I want you to know these things about me, so I'm going to pose them in the way of like, I'm learning about you, but really this is this is my storytelling. Um, so a couple of the questions were like, what's the worst date you've ever been on? And so I told him that story, um, which had a motorcycle and motorcycle oil getting all over my leg and the guy refusing to pay the tab at dinner because the chick forgot to, the waitress forgot to put it on our um, tab. I mean, it, that was just awful. Um, and he was like, oh, well, mine was at this bar where I met this chick and she told me that she was going to fix me. And then I, you know, kind of ditched her and then invited my ex-girlfriend to come here. And then we had sex in the parking lot. And I'm like, okay, maybe this is my worst date. <laughs> so it was just that after like, you know, do, was there the one that got away um, and you know, that's a tough question. Like, is there one that got away? Like, yeah, we all have people that we absolutely loved in our life and, you know, couldn't make it work for whatever reason. So it's a, it's a vulnerable question, right? Um, you know, so I'm telling him about like the story of, you know, this guy who I loved and, you know, maybe even still some way hold a candle for him, but just, you know, getting to that point of like, it's never going to work. You have this thing that you want to do. And I have this thing I don't want to do. And, you know, like it's hard to be vulnerable with someone in that way. Right. So I'm like trying to figure out how do I navigate this? I want to be authentic and honest and, and get to know you because that's what a date is versus I am giving you too much and you don't really deserve it and you haven't earned this information. Um, and he was like, oh, well, you know, I, I was dating this chick and she was really awesome, but she was like a four. But if she got her teeth and her boobs done, she would have been like an eight. And I kind of wanted to offer, you know, to get her teeth and her boobs done, but I never did. So, you know, I just broke up with her. And I'm like, wow, this guy's an asshole. And then the next one was um, something along the lines of, do you regret, well, it's something about one night stands. And um, I totally lied to him. And I was like, I don't do those, um, you know, because I didn't want him getting any kind of thought that this might be a one night stand because that definitely was not happening. But I was like, yeah, I don't, I don't do one night stands. And he was like, oh, cool. Um, so I had a threesome with this chick in the middle of the night with my girlfriend. And after it was over, my girlfriend was like, dude, you got to get rid of her. And she didn't have a car. So we were living downtown at the time. And um, I just, you know, kicked her out and she went and sat down at three o'clock in the morning until the buses started running. And at that point I was like, this guy is a total creep and I have to get out of here. And um, I had already ordered like another drink by this time. So I'm sitting here like with a full drink and this guy who's giving me the creeps and he's like, okay, this is one of this question I've really been wanting to ask you. And I was like, okay. And he said, um, you when, how old were you when you started horseback riding? And I said, I was six years old. So I'm just imagining like my little six-year-old self and this little picture that I have from this, you know, birthday party where I'm like, you know, I got dressed up for the occasion. I have a little bandana on. Like, it was so cool. Like, I think about this picture. And he was like, okay, so did you break your hymen horseback riding or through sex? And I was just like, oh my God. I don't even know how you think that this is an okay question to ever ask someone ever. Um, and I just looked at him in my, my bitchiest, mean, you know, eighth grade girl voice and was like, that is absolutely none of your business. 
And I got up and went to the bathroom and I was like, okay, in the bathroom, like, what am I going to do now? Time to regroup. Like, how do I get out of here? How do I pay my bill? Um, he already told me that, you know, he's a disgusting human being. Like, I don't want him walking me to my car. Um, you know, I had left my jacket there, but I had taken my purse and, you know, is he going to put something in my drink? So like all of these thoughts are running through my head. And I just went to the manager and was like, um, can I pay my tab and can somebody walk me to my, my car? And it was just, all of that was very triggering. And I'm like, why, how do I fix my picker? How do I, how do I not keep picking, you know, the same person over and over again and expecting a different result? Well, I would counter that that's not entirely your fault. I mean, how do you know that somebody like that, obviously they're going to try to present their best behavior up to a point and then their true self is revealed. I think that level of creepiness, I would just suggest being kind to yourself and not, <laughs> you know, owning all that because I don't know what app or what profile would reveal that he's just an absolute creep. Well, but what I think the, the other ahead. thing that it brings up is like, Oh my God, how many awful first dates have you been on where you're like, I would rather be cleaning my apartment than sitting here with this person. Um, it, you know, so, so you have to, you have to meet someone to know if there's any kind of chemistry, like, you know, within five minutes, whether or not you have some kind of attraction to this person, if it could go somewhere, if you could picture them naked, like you have to get to know someone to be able to do that. But, you know, the texting and the messaging through the app, one, they want you to keep it on the app because that's how they monitor it and they keep you safe. So that was one of the things I did end up filing um, a complaint with uh, the app and they ended up removing him and they went through and could see our messages. Um, but, you know, like you just don't know until you meet somebody and then you go on enough bad first dates and you're like, I, this isn't worth it. Like I've got really amazing dogs at home that I would just so much rather be hanging out with than, you know, <laughs> terrible first date. Like it's not worth it. Yeah. Well, I read a book a while ago. I think it was The Gift of Fear and talking about how you should trust your gut. And so... I don't know where on the, the awareness you were of that, but something felt wrong and you listened to that and then you had the courage to get out of there, which I think is, which is amazing. And I learned that the hard way, um, you know, and, and I, I talk about this in, in the book where um, the first time that I had those feelings, I didn't know how to listen to them and I didn't know um, how to trust that intuition and, and feel that I was valid. Um, so that's another one of the reasons why that date was so triggering for me, because it was like, I've been here before and I didn't learn that time. Am I going to learn this time? Do you recall a tipping point with Renee where it went from the, I guess the, because again, I've been in a lot of therapy where it went from kind of fuzzy getting to know you to like this is real and this is something that we're really unpacking. Do you remember what that moment was? I don't think it was one sort of pivotal moment. Um, I think it was earning trust. Um, I will say one of the things that Renee recommended for me um, was to see a psychiatrist and potentially get on some medication, which I ended up doing. Um, and, and her point was, when you're running on empty and you're trying to face something that's really hard, you don't have the resources to be able to handle it well. So if you can get some kind of a buffer zone that keeps you operating at like maybe between three quarters and a half full tank, then you have the strength to be able to dive into things. Um, so I saw a doctor and got on some, you know, mood stabilizers, antidepressants, whatever. And that really helped me go, okay, I can do this. Um, and so it was just sort of getting stronger in that sort of emotional resiliency way and then feeling like I'm ready to do this. I had the exact same experience because when I was diagnosed with ADHD 15 years ago or so, I was on gabapentin and that really helped. And I had the exact same experience because I was just aware of like, it was almost like the veil had lifted and I could look out the window and see things more clearly. But until I could 
go through the, the the CBT cognitive behavioral therapy and work through that. Yeah, having the the buffer and the 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 help made all the difference in the world. So it's interesting. It's interesting that you say that. So trauma can present um, the same symptoms as ADD. And so this trauma doesn't allow you to really focus. And one of the things that one of the drugs that the psychiatrist put me on was Adderall, just because I couldn't sit there and focus. Mm. And having been on it, um, I'm like, God, I wish I could have had this when I was a kid. Like, I wish that that I had been able to have this resource because I'm so much more productive and I am able to think about things and I can be, pre- I just felt more present um, in the world. And I don't know if you've experienced this, but there's a national Adderall shortage right now. Um, and I realized just how much I needed no it in the grocery store um, because normally I'm like, I have my list. I know where everything is. I have my little pathway. Like I go to the same grocery store all the time. And it was like, okay, I didn't have my list. So it's like, okay, I know I need milk. So I'd go over to the milk aisle and be like, okay, I know I need cereal. So then I'd go over to the cereal aisle and it's like, okay, wait a minute, I need cheese. And then I'd have to go back over to the milk aisle. And it's like, okay, this is why I need Adderall. <laughs> I cannot function. It's not just you, my friend. Um, <laughs> I literally hate the grocery store. And as part of my uh, journey of like getting organized and managing my attention and all that, I, this is way before apps and I had actually created a map of the grocery store, I think in Excel. And so then I could just go through and then one day those motherfuckers had rearranged the oh whole store. Oh my God. Store. No! <laughs> and it wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't a meltdown. It was just frustrating because it, to me, it's so inefficient because we're putting the crap in the cart. We take the crap to the thing, take the stuff out of the cart, run it through the thing, put it back in the cart, take it home. And to me, there's so many wasted steps there that it's just, you know, it's like, I know I need to eat. <laughs> and um, so I, I use grocery delivery and I just don't care because I, I would rather pay the convenience fee, the subscription than just have um, the time wasted. It's so frustrating because uh, I don't know if I've ever talked about this on, on the podcast, but I was looking for beans and I don't remember if it was black beans or baked beans. And it was, I had looked at the soup, I'd look at the beans and I couldn't find the beans I wanted. And then I remember this clear as day. There was, it was country day on the, the overhead speakers <laughs> and there was this horrible song. And it was one of them where they started talking in the middle of it, which I just cannot stand. And rather, this is like a turning moment, like managing my emotions. I just simply set the basket down, took a deep breath, and I walked out of the store. <laughs> I'm, I'm done. I can't. This is my my sign that it's time to move on. Um, yeah. Well, enough about the grocery. Hey, you wrote a book. I did. <laughs> we should probably talk about I that. Um, um, one of the things I'm fascinated about with authors, and you're an author because you finished it, you published it, and a lot of people I think are at coffee shops and they're trying to be a screenwriter, trying to be an author, and I've seen a lot of Facebook windows open at coffee shops. Um, two questions what was your process and did you ever quit or how close did you get to quitting? Um, really great questions. So I always knew I was going to write a book from the time I was young. Um, and I don't know how I knew or why I knew. Um, but I always had this, this inclination that like I was going to have a story that I needed to just tell. Um, and that I, I had a family story that I needed to tell. Um, and I, I kind of had some false starts throughout my life. So like when I was in Los Angeles and going through film school, it was like, okay, now is the time. And I was like, no, I'm, I really just, the story isn't there yet. Um, and then through some of the work I was doing with Renee and through telling people about my divorce, um, a lot of people, you know, just telling them my, my story, they're like, oh, you should write a book. You should write a book. And so 
I went in to see Renee because I wanted to answer three questions. Why did I pick my ex-husband? Why did I stay? And what was I getting out of the marriage? And I could answer those two questions, but I didn't, the, the two first questions, but I didn't have an answer for the third, which was what was I getting out of it? And I just kind of started going, okay, I feel like I'm getting ready for this book. I feel like I'm, I feel like it's percolating and it's getting to, you know, sort of a boiling point. And I started doing like a little bit of research about different book styles and, you know, story styles. And um, I really kind of settled on like a hero's journey. Like this really makes the most sense for me to be able to tell the whole transformation of who I, who I was when I got married the pivotal moments that changed me to really be able to find my voice and stand up for myself and be the person that I I am. And then the aftermath of divorcing a narcissist um, and, and, you know, kind of how all of that happened. And then again, the final chapter of, you know, why did I pick him? Why did I stay? What did I get out of it? Um, And it wasn't until I actually wrote the book that I was able to answer the, what was I getting out of it? So I'm not going to give it away for anybody who wants to read the book. Um, <laughs> but uh, I, I was compelled. Um, you know, I, I didn't go to a coffee shop and write. I would write at my kitchen table um, and, you know, sit down with a glass of wine and write from, you know, 6 p.m. at night. And then I would look at the clock and it would be 1 a.m. And, you know, I'd had three sips of my wine and it was like, okay, this is how I have to tell the story. And Um, there are things that I don't even remember writing about in my book. It just went from my brain through my hands onto the page. Um, you know, it, it was more of just a very cathartic experience. And the two questions that I asked myself or that I used to center myself every time before I sat down to write were, what is writing this going to do for me? And what could it do for someone that reads it. Like, could I help someone with my story? And that was the motivating factor for me, not just to be cathartic and tell this, you know, creative nonfiction story of, of my life. Um, but, you know, is there something in my story? Is there something in my process that could have helped someone else? And that made it all worth it. Did I ever think about quitting or did I ever was I ever tempted to quit? Not even for one second did I think about quitting. I would wake up mm. in the middle of the night and be like, okay, this is how I'm going to write this part. And then I would like take the notebook pad that was next to my bed and just jot down the little notes for myself about like, tell this story in this way um, or tell this part of the story like this, or don't forget this part. Or, you know, there was a, a scene or something that had happened and I didn't really know where to kind of plug it in. And I would wake up in the night and be like, Oh, that's where it goes. Um, so I never felt compelled or, or like failure is an option or stopping is an option. Um, but I did have to force myself to put it down and wait a week before going back and working on it again. Because I found that I just was so much like, I have to write this and I have to get this out, that I, I wasn't actually doing the story justice. And I needed to take a step back from it in order to kind of let all of that stuff process so I could go back to it with fresh eyes and have a better and different approach. What was the most difficult chapter to write? Um, difficult. How, how do you define that? Great, great follow-up question. Um, so from the idea stage that you wanted to get this down and it, you either didn't want to go there or it was such a harder experience than writing any of the other chapters. Um, maybe most challenging, most intimate, most scary. Maybe those are some better qualifiers. I guess the chapter where I absolutely sobbed 
writing and I can't read it without like just going back to that place and that day and time and you know how how all of that happened um was the sing me to sleep chapter um you know where I had to say goodbye to a very 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 dear friend and my my soulmate um and that was I really I really wanted to honor that friendship and that relationship and I'm going to cry talking about it um but like good tears it's not sad it's like I get to go there and I get to think about him and I get to um you know relive like his presence is is here and I feel like he's always with me but um I wanted it to be beautiful and I wanted it to reflect the peaceful I don't want to say joy, but we made it joyful um, of helping him cross over and that I choose to keep him with me every single moment of every single day and how in that way he doesn't feel like he's gone. I'm trying and failing desperately to call up that chapter on this reading. Uh, it's but... <laughs> uh, it's called Sing Me to Sleep. I think it's chapter 30, 34. Yeah, I have it right here. It's just not clicking. So yeah. I'm going to put you on the spot for my technical failures. Um, who was this person to you? Um, my, my puppy. It's chapter 21. Uh, his name was Hank, and he was the love of my life. And, um, I adopted him as an eight week old puppy. He was very, very sick. Um, almost died. Actually, he had distemper and nine out of 10 dogs, uh, do not survive temper distemper. Um, it left him with no teeth. He had tremors. He had severe arthritis all over his body. Um, he was the most expensive dog. We're talking six figures. And medical bills. I'm not even kidding you. Um, and I was very fortunate to have uh, insurance to help, you know, cover that. But um, he just, there was nothing and has not been anything that I have loved the way that I love that dog. He was my best friend. And it sounds like he was with you through the worst parts of the story. Through all of them, from the beginning to the very end. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 2020 was the hardest year of my entire life. Um, in January, Hank died. And in early March, well, in early March, my divorce was finalized. Um, then we had COVID two weeks later and the pandemic and all of that. In April, my landlord told me he was selling my house. Um, so I had either had to move or, you know, try to buy a house, which is terrifying in the middle of a pandemic when you're a single woman by yourself. Um, and, you know, I bought a house, I moved, um, I had a litter of puppies in my living room, <laughs> which was insane. <laughs> and then I bought a horse for myself for Christmas. So, I mean, it was kind of the biggest year of my entire life. Um, but I, I approached everything that I went through with gratitude and um i'm gonna get through this and i'm gonna be okay and you know this is it's like what they say in steel magnolias no matter how bad it is it can always get worse good perspective <laughs> would would the wiley davis of 2020 recognize or believe the wiley davis of march 8th 2023 um, would she recognize her? No, but she would want to be really good friends with her because she would be like, that woman is badass. I can tell that you believe that. You're not just saying that. That I'm a badass? Yeah. 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 And that you've, that you've earned yeah. it. Uh, what is that quote? Uh, I, I know my worth because I have paid dearly for it. Mm. That I think we've found our title. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There, I don't think that there's anything wrong with knowing who you are and what you're going to stand for and what you're not going to stand for. And, you know, being able to say, um, 
no or yes or you know we need to make some modifications because i'm not okay with that whatever that is there were four um i guess at least for me cornerstones that i wrote down from the book and it was uh not begging to be seen learning to forgive the black figure and then saying enough. Those were chapters and pages I had bookmarked because I just felt they were, at least for me, uh, turning points, cornerstones, um, transformations in telling that story. And not only what they meant, but sort of how you'd phrased it, especially you know, saying enough, kind of going back to what you said, saying yes or saying no and uh, not begging to be seen. Those were all, um, yeah, they're quite powerful to read. Well, quite powerful. thank you. Um, I, guess, I guess I have a question for you, Matt, which is what was it like, I mean, my book is very much geared towards women, but as a man, sorry about that. Um, can you take that out or do you want me to, did you hear that? No. Okay. Yeah. Um, sorry. Okay, so. Matt, my question for you is, uh, my book is very much geared towards women, and you're a dad, and I presume you've been a husband. Um, what was it like for you to kind of hear this person's story, um, and to your point about what those turning points were, you know, how, how do you kind of, was there anything in the book that made you look at women differently? particularly on this women's history or women's international women's day. So this is my podcast and I don't. Answer <laughs> <that question>. <laughs> 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 um, no, that those are, um, yeah, as a dad, that took me, couple different places. So I wanted to share the, I think the situational awareness that I think a woman has to have that a guy doesn't, especially when, when dating, things like that. Um, I've been in cities, both foreign and domestic where like, here's a perfect example. I was in Copenhagen in October and wanted some terrible American snacks. So I kind of have remembered a convenience store somewhere that way from the hotel. And it was 10 o'clock at night. And even though Copenhagen is a, an incredibly safe European city, uh, I was like, well, I'm going to walk over and didn't even Google map it. I just kind of went that direction and it's like cut down this alley, you know, and I was, I was aware of what was going on. I wasn't fearless by any means. And, you know, I'm definitely not Jason Bourne. I have never had, <laughs> um, uh, martial arts training or have been in the military, but I just don't think that that's something that a woman would do without a lot of thought. And as my daughter is becoming, uh, she's 20, she'll be 21 in July and thinking about her going out to bars and things like that. Um, I think my wish for her would, that I would want her to learn from your experiences and not have to ever experience that to gain that wisdom. And I think she is incredibly powerful and capable already, but there's a certain things as a, a dad or like, even as, even as your friend, I was reading these chapters and I just wanted to reach across the country and just give you a hug and just say, I, I will never understand what this felt like, but I can empathize with what you had gone through. And as, as a husband, 
uh, former husband, um, seeing my life in two different, I'll just call it characters. It's kind of the word that pops into my head. You know, or identities is probably a stronger, more accurate word. Um, I was probably before my diagnosis and therapy, I was definitely Chad like, and you know, 10% of that, you know, never as big an asshole as that. <laughs> I hope <laughs> your email address isn't on AshleyMadison.com. <laughs> <laughs> no, <laughs> no. Um, but as, as much work as I've put into myself to be just a better person. And by that, I define that by the relationships that I have, both with my kids, friends, employers, coworkers, romantic relationships. Um, that was a powerful reminder of how far I've come and that it's physical fitness and emotional fitness just because I've done um, some exercises this morning doesn't mean I can stop because I've hit a certain plateau. I have to keep on top of these things to stay the person that uh, I want to be. No more questions. <laughs> well, thank you for, um, for your honesty. I will say um, I've had uh, a, a gentleman who read my book say to me, um, I saw a mirror for the way that I sometimes speak to my wife and how I can see her mm. shutting down when I use certain words and tones. Um, so when I go back to the whole reason why I wrote the book was to help myself, but also to help others. Um, that feels like a, a validation in um, the work that I've done and, and my motivation for having written the book. Um, you know, I, I, I talk about like, Chad never hit me. He never laid a hand on me, but I was absolutely terrified. Um, and, you know, I, I ended up leaving him because I no longer believed that he wouldn't hit me. Um, so, you know, it's, it's a really hard, you know, line to kind of walk, right. Where it's, um, it, it's, it's like people always say, well, why didn't she leave? Why didn't she leave? When you're in that moment, you know, and I talk about this, there's a scene in the book where, um, we were sharing, you know, taking turns. We had a one bedroom apartment and taking turns, he was sleeping on the couch and he came storming in drunk as a skunk, you know, screaming about having lost a thousand dollars on um, a pool game. And I'm like, okay, I'm covering us financially. And where did you come up with a thousand dollars to lose on a pool game? But like with him yeah. storming through the house and my dog sitting on top of me, like shaking, protecting me, um, you know, him slamming doors to the point where it shook the entire apartment and echoed, you know, down, down the street, you know, at two o'clock in the morning, that was when I was like, okay, the thoughts going through my head are like, do I leave now? But it's not bad enough for me to leave forever. So how do I leave now and then come back tomorrow and have a conversation about this? Um, you know, where, where do I go? Am I going to call, you know, Courtney and say, Hey, it's two o'clock in the morning. Can I just come crash in your house tonight with the dogs? And then, and then what, what is the aftermath after that? Because again, he hadn't hit me. I was just afraid of him. And then just seeing it, you know, continue to escalate to the point where it was like, okay, I, I'm not going to stick around for him to actually lay a hand on me. Like I'm uh, getting to the point where it's like, I'm done. One of my previous guests, uh, Michelle, had talked about that, and she had mentioned that women that are in any kind of abusive relationship, they try to leave, I think there's statistics, she said like seven to eight times before they actually get out the door. And so not having the empathy to say, oh, why didn't you just leave? Well, it's like... Have you ever packed for vacation? <laughs> ever packed for a business trip? You know, like how involved that is to go for, you know, 
four days to Atlanta or wherever. And now you're taking your whole entire life with that fear of reprisal or retaliation or violence. It's just, it's just not that easy. I knew I could not have a confrontation with him where I could look at him in the face and say, I am leaving. I knew I would not, that would not go over well for me. Um, and I was able to manipulate a situation where some his best friend came and got him out of the house so that I could then go in and pack up all of my stuff. And I had 20 minutes and it was like, your house is on fire and you have to go through and get everything that means something to you right now. And it was me and my two dogs. And, you know, thank God for the world's best friend because she showed up and was like, I'm here and stay with me as long as you need to. And, um, you know, she, she took me in and her dogs and my dogs and, you know, we, I figured out how to make it work, but it's not, it's not just like, oh, you know, let me pack a suitcase. It's like, I can't come back. Once I leave, I cannot come back. There's no, we're going to have a conversation about anything. Yeah. And I, I think about it's so your, your question about as a, as a husband, or I'd say as a, a dating romantic partner in that context. And I think about the powerful negative emotions that so many people experience in relationships and the question that just keeps popping back into my head and it has been since the two weeks that I've read the book is why does it have to be like this? And I think that that opens up a very broad question about people's past and how they were raised and how they see relationships and, and their level of tolerance or, or capability for handling frustration and things. And then I think the expectations that are placed on the other in a relationship that are, I think, somewhat unreasonable. And <laughs> I went on a date a couple months ago and we were having a decent time sitting there having breakfast. And, and I was like, <laughs> I was feeling kind of, kind of salty. I was like, so what do you think? <laughs> and and um, I asked the question, I don't want to sound callous, but I wasn't concerned about the response. I was genuinely asking for what her opinion, like what she had noticed, what she had thought about. Um, and she had basically described what you just said, like you got your dogs, you got your horse, got friends, got bikes. And, and she just said, I think you're very content and you're quite happy and you don't necessarily need somebody. And I said, true, but it's not that I've pegged the needle the other way and have become emotionally disconnected. Cause I think, you know, what you've experienced, what I've experienced, what anybody has experienced where relationships go sideways is like, I don't ever want to get hurt again. So you can shut down. You can live this life of somewhat isolation from that. And I just, why was I bringing that story up? Oh, I think just because you were talking about, you know, with that bad date so many years ago about <laughs> just rather be home with the dogs. <laughs> I mean, look, you, you asked, you know, why does it have to be that way? Why does it have, you know, what, mm -hmm. and I, I unpacked with Renee and I, I talked about it in the book, why I picked the person that I picked and, and the pattern of people that I picked. Right. And it was because I knew how to survive being screamed at because my mother did that to us as kids. And my dad was a narcissist. And so I saw a lot of familiar traits in the person that I married and the person that I was picking. So going into therapy saying, how do I fix my picker? How do I unpack these elements of this? Um, and, you know, it was through the work that I did with Renee where it was like, okay, I, I picked him because I knew how to survive being screamed at. Like mm. I knew that I could do this and it was familiar to me. 
Um, and then, you know, this, the same thing with my dad, like the life of the party, the storyteller, um, you know, whether the story is true or not, like, you know, always, always a good time guy. Um, and then, you know, to your point about being whole, I think I got married because at the time it wasn't bad enough to call off the relationship, but also there's this idea that we, we need something else to complete us because we are not complete on our own or we can't be complete on our own. And I am a full, happy, complete person, whether I am in a relationship or not, whether I am a mother or not, whether I am a wife or not, whether I have a job or not. Um, my, my validation as the person that I am does not come from these outside sources. And so when you get to a point of being peaceful in yourself, you are open to someone who can complete that, sorry, not complete, complement that because Mm -hmm. you are already complete as a person. So it's like, look, do I, do I need someone to be with all of the time? No. If I found someone that fit into the lifestyle that I have and and adds to it in positive ways and, you know, that person is able to go and be their own complete person and they're not looking at me to fill any of these holes and voids, like, you know, it's not 50-50. It's not I'm 50% and you're 50%. It's I'm 100% and you need to be 100%. And when you get to that, you can have adult, vulnerable conversations about relationships like what you had with this person, where it's like, hey, what are you getting out of this? Is this good for you? Like, what do you need? Um, and then you can have a negotiation of, well, I'm, I can give you X part of what you asked for, but I'm not going to give you, you know, whatever. And then you start to, you know, kind of negotiate the terms of the relationship and those emotional needs that you're willing to meet. And you know, I, I am not afraid of getting hurt. This is just me. Um, cause I believe in life, you know, like there's a chapter called when life hands you lemons by champagne. Um, the IRS took every <laughs> single right. dollar that I had and it was like, okay, well I can sit here and be upset about this, but you can't have the sweet without the bitter. You can't have the rainbow without the rain. Like it's not all rainbows and butterflies all of the time. You have to be able to put yourself out there and be vulnerable, but you also have to know that it's not going to destroy you. And I'm meaning you as in what I would be saying to myself. It's not going to destroy me to be vulnerable with someone. Mm-hmm. And I am strong enough to get through a heartbreak if it's something that I found worth investing in to begin with. Does that make sense? I guess that's just my dating philosophy. Oh, totally. Totally. Um, I So this is last summer. I had met somebody uh, in the wild, <laughs> you know, not on an app. <laughs> that's very rare. It, yeah. <laughs> this happened twice. And it's both been amazing. <laughs> it's a genuine connection, right? Like, hey, what's up? You're real. Like, what are you up to? What are you doing? Like, who are you? I'm interested. Yeah, 100%. And I've actually asked this question on dates before because this relationship was basically two weeks long. And it's it, on paper, and I, and I asked the question because I, 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 I go, on paper, it never would have worked. It didn't work out. And there was no uh, sadness or remorse at the end of that two weeks. But for those two weeks, it was passionate. It was incredible. And I asked people after giving that context, knowing all that and knowing it was finite, would you go through with it? And I don't judge people too much if they say no, but I think about that we're probably not philosophically aligned and just taking a look at what it could be without an endpoint or a duration ex- expectation on it. And it was like, yeah, some people say yes. And some people say, uh, no. And that leads to some interesting discussions, but I wouldn't trade that experience for anything. It was phenomenal. 
And that led to other amazing encounters out in the wild too. That was like, look at what it is, not what it isn't. Right. <clears throat> I am in. Which took me a lot of homework to <laughs> get to that point. <laughs> I am in the ultimate pursuit of doing what is pleasurable and what sparks joy and what I can learn from and what I'm comfortable with. And um, I don't have any, you know, limitations on, you know, whatever that is. Do you think limitations are put in place in certain cases to prevent people from challenging themselves or from getting hurt? Do you think people are so specific, like, and to keep it in the dating world, do you think people are so specific with what they're looking for that they do that to protect themselves? Um, I think people have an end goal. And so what they're looking for is going to fit into that end goal. Um, you know, I want to have kids. I want to get married. I want to grow old with someone. Mm. Um, I don't have an end goal. My end goal is when I can no longer ride horses or walk my dogs, like I'm done. That's it. That's what I want. There's no, I need to find a life partner or, um, I, I, I'm going to have kids and I need to, there's this ticking time clock against, you know, mother nature. Like I, I don't have those aspirations. And so there isn't a box that I'm trying to put everything into. I'm just, yeah. You know, and, and, and people ask me this in job interviews. I'm sure you, you've heard this question of like, where do you want to be in five years? And I look at my life and my career and, you know, the things that I do as like just a big piece of clay and every experience that I have just comes to shape it. And whatever it looks like at the end is what it looks like. But I'm not like, okay, this needs to be a vase at the end of whatever time period when I'm done with it. And if it doesn't look like a vase or there's a chip on it or whatever, then I'm going to be unhappy. I just look at it as like, okay, well, what's this experience going to do? What's this person going to do? How is this going to change things? What am I comfortable with? And then whatever shape it ends up with, I'm going to be happy with it because I had no expectations to begin with. That's right. It's not not settling and it's not not having boundaries. It's being, you said like present, like way back at the start of this conversation, being present. And that's something I've had to work so hard to do, to be present. And that's where the magic comes from, really. It can be small moments and it could be weekends. It could be years, but just show up and pay attention. <laughs> and that's, that's a reminder to me continually. <laughs> well, and I think to your point earlier of like, you have to be able to say what you want and you, you, I, I am, um, I wish that there was more honesty and vulnerability in, you know, dating relationships, especially early on, which is like, okay, what do you think? Like, what are you into? What, wh how, how are, what are you hoping to get out of this and where do you want it to go? And how are you thinking about where it is right now? Because I think particularly for women, it's really hard to have those conversations with someone that they're dating because then it turns into like, oh, don't catch feelings. And like, I'm just having fun. And, you know, I just don't really like, I don't really want this to go anywhere. Like, I don't want this to be exclusive or like, oh, you have expectations. And like this, you know, is just not going to be that. Just be honest and, and, you know, upfront with who you are and what you're doing and what your motive is. And, you know, let the other person genuinely and authentically respond to that instead of in your mind going, I'm just going to have fun. And in the other person's mind, it's like, I'm going to marry you. You know, like that's, that's where we're not mind readers. Like you have to be able to have those hard conversations about who you are and what you want and what you're trying to do. And defining the terminology, right? Like having fun could mean uh, concerts and going to plays and, hikes and to somebody else that could mean oh they don't want a commitment they just want to do this do that do that so defining those terms up front yeah i honestly think wiley that if we ran dating the same way that we did in business we'd be all much better off i mean <laughs> you know I, it, it's funny like i i i always think back to my friendship with courtney because this girl 
I would never have a baby with someone, but if she was like, Hey, I want to have a baby. Will you help me raise it? I'd be like, absolutely. What, like, what are we doing? Like, when are we doing this? You know, because there is, there's such a level of intimacy where she can say to me, Hey, um, do you mind keeping the kid tonight so I can go have cocktails or go do whatever, you know? And it's like, I love you so much that all I want for you is to be able to have support you and you living your best life. So whatever that looks like for you, I'm, I'm happy to do it. There's no like harboring anger and you did this thing five years ago and I'm still mad about it. Like if something happens, we talk about it in the moment or we sleep mm-hmm. on it for 24 hours and then we talk about it the next day. And it's like, hey, I'm really sorry. You know, I said that I was drunk and on one and I love you so much and I never want to hurt you. And it's like, I know. I know you were drunk. I love you. It's not that big of a deal. Like, we're going to get through this. You know, I know that if I had a cancer diagnosis tomorrow, she is the first person I would call. And she would drop everything and come over and take care of me the same way that, you know, if she said I want to have a baby, I would, you know, we'd figure it out. I'd help her do it. You know, that... I I don't know that I could have that strong of an intimate relationship with a partner because it's hard, you know, there's no jealousy. Mm-hmm. There's no, you know, this is my money or this is my time or you owe me this or, you know, whatever. We're just happy to be together. Yeah, it's almost like the stronger the bond gets, it's that we forget to do the things that created those bonds. Say say more. What do you mean? Um, I think it's the little things that build the connection. And then I think the familiarity and then the, I think the connection or the commitment, it can be a tendency to those things get forgotten like the the tiny little things that mean so much like you know not not unloading the dishwasher but you know you hear your you hear your song or one of your favorite couple songs come on and you don't send the text like you're walking into a meeting and whereas you know three months four months into a relationship like oh i gotta step out and like i'm gonna send you this song or you're going into the meeting like ah i'll get it after this meeting yeah those it's all you know it's the it's the the sand and the water and the cement in between the bricks that you know bind it and it's the littlest grain of sand right yeah. so look at me getting all philosophical <laughs> <laughs> i clearly have no idea what <laughs> well uh i think the book is uh, fascinating. I was your question about being a man and former husband and a father. It was impactful to me, uh, to read it. And I think, um, it, it should be used as a a guide and inspiration, a, a channel marker, all very positive things for, even if you've never been through it, um, to understand people that have, and just to build a general sense of empathy and some awareness. And I just realized I never said what the title of the book is. <laughs> <laughs> this pro level podcasting here. Wiley, what is the title of the it's book? It's <laughs> called It's Me or the Horse. And the purpose behind that is, um, it's not actually, it's me or the horses in something that my ex-husband said to me. That was the question that I had to ask myself is if I mm. give up the horse, then I give up myself. And my ex-husband asked me to give up the horse. And it was like, okay, if I have to stay in this marriage, I have to give up one of those two things. And if I give up the horse, I'm giving up myself and I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do either of those. Um, it, you know, my, my husband literally said, I want you to stop horseback riding so that I don't have to work and I can work, I can write my screenplay and stay at home. And, um, you know, my, my first thought was like, okay, well, you marry the wrong girl. And then <laughs> my second thought was, uh, that's, that's never going to happen. Like, I'm just, I'm not doing it. Um, so 
the unraveling when you stand up to a narcissist. Mm-hmm. How does that work? Hmm. Yeah. Well, where can people find it? I'll post links to that in the, the show notes. Um, that, great question. Can... It's currently on um, Kindle Unlimited for free. Um, so if you have that subscription, you can read it for free. Um, it's on Amazon in uh, ebook, paperback, and hard copy. Or you can go to my website and use code Matt Sonakar Podcast what? for 20% <laughs> off. And um, I will send you um, a book and I will sign it. I'm awesome. also doing a promotion for the month of March for Women's History Month, um, where if you want to send it as a gift, you can use code empowered um, and get 20% off to send it to someone else. And I will send all of that to you written so that you can, um, you know, post it in your show notes. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me, Matt. This was a delightful conversation. Um, I love talking about my book. I'm, I'm not going to lie. It's really fun for me. So um, thank you for reading it. Thank you for having me. Um, thank you for your honesty and your candor. And I don't, maybe we'll have you on a, as a guest on my podcast whenever that happens. Count me in. Awesome. 100%. <laughs> <laughs> Wiley, thank you so much. I'm going to hit stop here and then let's chat for a second. Awesome. Thank you so much for doing this. I really thank enjoyed you. it. Thank you. Episodes of this podcast are produced by me, Matt Sodnikar. Big thanks to Cole Weinman for the engineering of the intro. And thanks to Randy Weafe for Retro Funk, our theme music. And hey, I've got two requests for you. If you like this show please share it with somebody either through Apple podcasts or Spotify and show them how to listen to a podcast if they've never done it. And I know, you know, somebody out there that would be a fantastic guest and please shoot me a note on Instagram at the Matt Sodcast and let's talk to them. Thanks a lot. Talk to you soon.